Braves, Bulldogs, Falcons, Yellow Jackets, Hawks, Eagles. From the heart of Georgia, it's the Bill Shank Show. Hour number two of our broadcast. Thank you very much for being with us. I'm Bill Shanks. It's 4 o'clock on this Wednesday. We'll start taking your phone calls a little bit later on in the show. Right now, we're going to talk a little college football. Tony Barnhart is Mr. College Football at Mr. MRCFB on Twitter. You can also read his content on TMG College Sports. And he also has a book out that we will talk to him about, The Nighting of Green. And he's also a member of the Georgia Sports Hall of Fame. We'll talk with him about that. How are you, sir? I am well, Mr. Shanks. How about you? I'm great. Am I going to see you this weekend? Oh, absolutely. Great. I, I love to come back every year we can. So, yes, Miss, Miss Maria and I will be there uh, on, on Friday night for the uh, the jacket presentation. Well, good. I always loved seeing you and your, your wife and, uh, and knew you probably would. And but before we get going on some college football things, and we are going to talk about your book as well, but I, one of the reasons why I wanted you on – is to to get your thoughts and feedback on someone who's going in that I know means a lot to me and I, I I know I don't even have to assume that he means a lot to you because if you've gone through the doors of the University of Georgia as a student and then even as a a journalist you have had connection with Claude Felton who is going in as a contributor and you know I, I was telling uh, Chip Towers and I were talking about this yesterday. I mean, I've been in this business for a long time, um, and I've dealt with several different sports. It's unusual because, for example, the, the pro sports information directors or communications directors or media relations directors, whatever they're called, they don't last long. They bounce around a lot. They get fired. They leave for a different job. They leave to go back home. But here's someone who did this until January 31st. For 44 years, and even a couple years in Statesboro, Georgia Southern, before that. So that's unusual, but it's it's beyond that, isn't it, with Claude Felton, Tony? Well, you know, not too many times in life do you get a chance to meet someone who is not only just a wonderful human being, but they are the very best at what they do. And there's really there's really no debate about Claude Felton being the the best sports information director ever. Wow. All you got to do, all you got to do, is talk to his uh, his peers and talk to them. And, and if you go to them, I did this in a column. If you went to them and said, "Who's the best sports information director ever?" and every one of them would say, they wouldn't say Claude Felton. They'd say Claude because they knew <laughs> you knew what you were what you were saying. So mm-hmm. I am I am so thrilled that he is going into the Hall of Fame. Uh, he and, uh, you know, I t- told his wife Kathy. I said, "You know, this has got to happen." Uh, I'm I'm so pleased it finally has happened. Many people may think, you know, all right, why a sports information director? But I think, while that's a, a valid question to a certain extent, compared to athletes and coaches and so forth, we're talking about the very best. We're talking about the the the. I mean, there's nobody even comparing to, mm-hmm. with all due respect, with people in the state in that type of position with any of the teams. And that in itself makes him a Hall of Famer, doesn't it? It makes him a Hall of Famer. And if you talk to sports writers, 
I mean, they they would be unanimous in their yep. in the praise. You know, you can't measure what Claude Felton has meant to the University of Georgia athletic program, or to the University of Georgia for that matter, because you can't measure all of the, you know, how many people did he help. You know, writers would come in from out of town, and they know if they were coming in from out of town and they were coming to Georgia, they didn't worry about anything because they knew it was going to be taken care of. I know yeah. Claude's gotten phone calls from national media who at the last minute decide that uh, that they and they they're coming because of this big game in Athens, and Claude he he, he would not put them in some raft or someplace. He had a, he had a, he had good seats set up, and what he would do then he would assign one of his staffers, and he had a lot of them. He said, "You take care of these four guys because they're from L.A., Chicago, and New York, and Washington. You take care of them." And and Claude, that was Claude. He. He understood the the media. He understood the role of the media, and was there to be a sports information director. Yep, absolutely, no question. I can't wait to honor him on Friday night. And I think you're right. Every media member in this state would say would say the same thing. All right, um, you do have a new book, and I want to talk about that uh, for for a minute too, because it's such an interesting topic. Uh, Tony, because of the background, it's called The Nighting of Green. And people may think, well, is this a book about golf? Is this a book about football? No. Tell us about what it's about. Well, most of it, I tell people it's not a book about football. It's a book about relationships and making relationships. And But the, the, the short version of the story is that in the fall of 1970, uh, the state finally ruled that uh, – my home county, Greene County, is halfway between Atlanta and Augusta, off of I-20. And we had an all-black school and an all-white school. And the fall of 70, uh, after dragging their feet, they finally said, okay, these schools are going to merge. Uh, so it was all-white Greene County High School and all-black Floyd T. Carey High School. And the, all of us who played football from both schools we were excited. We thought, man, you're going to merge two schools. We're going to have 50 or 60 guys on our team. We're going to want a bunch of games. When spring practice was over for the fall of 1970, we had 19 guys. <laughs> and, and that's all we and we and, and when we played, we probably played about 16 of them. Uh-huh. But we, we ended up having just a, a wonderful season. Uh, we, we won seven out of our last eight, got made the playoffs and uh, lost that game. But uh, the book is about the fact that 53 years after we all played our last game together, we had a reunion on December 7th, December 9th, actually, at Greene County High School where it all began. The, the place was full. We, we did a book signing with all the players, and all the players got to sell books, uh, to autograph books, and it was a special, special day. And it's about relationships and the relationships. And Charles Turner, who was our quarterback, who came over from the black school, he was my first African-American friend. And 53 years later, he remains one of my very best friends. That's what the book's about. You know, those relationships you make early on in life, I actually, this is a funny, ironic story here. But this morning I was talking with someone who lives in Augusta. And I, I, I told him I was from Waycross, and then he mentioned that his neighbor was from Waycross. He said, do you know so-and-so? And I said, I grew up with him from first grade through seventh grade. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and I said, I haven't seen him probably in 30 years. The last time I saw him, I think, was at a classmate's wedding. 
that we both attended probably when we were in our mid to upper 20s. But I still love the guy because I grew up with him. I mean, those relationships that you make, whether it's like mine with a, a, a child from, you know, first through seventh grade or in high school, they, they, they always seem to mean so much to you for the rest of your life, don't they? They do, and I, the, the great pro, the great part of the book was the was the process of tracking down all these guys. Uh, there are nineteen original players; fifteen of us are, are still alive. But I, I interviewed every player who is still living, and uh, most of them, I think, twelve of them were in person. And but just tracking those guys down and speaking to the ones there were guys I had not spoken to in fifty years. Wow, and to go—I mean, how how many of us get a chance to relive <laughs> that part of your life? And it was—it was just a, a literally, it was a labor of love. It really was. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we encourage people to get that book. I think uh, they'll relate to a lot of that, and uh, just a great book. I'm sure you had a, a a great time writing that book. All right, Tony Barnhart's our guest, uh, of course, Mister College Football. Do you need to change your title? Are you embarrassed that title with what's going on in this sport? Because it's it it's just um, it's 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 crazy. I mean, I guess it's good for somebody that does a three hour sports talk show every day because there seems to be something that we can talk about almost every day. Tony, I said yesterday after what Annie Staples reported that was in the ACC's answer on Friday that that next domino we're all waiting for could be soon if the ACC is willing to negotiate with FSU. Is that the next thing you're watching for right now? Yeah, yeah, that is the next thing you're watching for. Obviously, you're you're watching the uh, CFP negotiations and what happens with the alliance between the Big Ten and the SEC. And right. Does it? I don't think. I don't think anything significant is going to change right now. It's too long a process, but it it is clear that Florida State is not happy. All right, and so it, it, you know what? Let them go, and we'll see where they. It'll be interesting to see where they line up. But yeah, Andy's right. I think that is the next. That is the next shoe to drop is some resolution of the ACC. Are you surprised that it sounds like the Big Ten is their destination compared to the SEC? And we actually had yesterday, I was sitting in for Jeff on his show when we were doing our program from a restaurant here in Macon uh, that's owned by a Florida State fan. And he said, yeah, most fans seem to want Big Ten. Does that surprise you? Well, it surprised me that they want the Big Ten, but I – Here's the thing with Florida State. People assume that Florida State will be going to the SEC, but you got to look at it from the SEC's perspective. What is Florida State bringing? Now they've got a wonderful football program, but this is not about the football program, Bill. This is about eyeballs to TV sets. This right. Is what is this is what it's all all about? Sure. But there there are two ways to look at this situation for Florida State. I think Florida State, when all is said and done, they want to be in the SEC. I, I don't I don't see a doubt about that. But the SEC may not want them and may not need them. Okay, and and the other, but the other point of view from the SEC is, is well, wait a minute, let's not be too hasty. Do we want Florida State? Do we want Florida State to go to the Big Ten? And now the Big Ten's got a toehold mm-hmm. in SEC country. All right, mm-hmm. Big Ten representative there, and maybe you take Florida State because you don't want them to be uh, to be in to give the Big Ten a presence. Uh, in the South. 
Yeah, I think it's a good a good point, and the same could be said therefore for Clemson, right? I mean, right. with with exactly. that, I mean, you may be able to get around taking all the Carolina schools, but with Clemson being the closest, it would almost seem that that would be silly too to allow Clemson to go to the Big Ten because we can just assume, Tony, that if FSU jumps, others are going to get on the ledge too, aren't they? Right. That's exactly that's exactly right. It, it is. It's going to be it's going to be a fascinating thing to watch. We are going through. I've been doing this a long time, and between this stuff that we're talking about here and the transfer portal and NIL, it is crazy out there. One thing that I've been curious about is: all right, let's say that FSU. Let's just take a number. Let's say they have to pay the ACC a hundred million to get out of this. Then let's say that four other schools follow suit, and they also have to pay. 100 million what are the remaining schools going to do with that half billion dollars and can that money turn around and attract enough play uh, 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 schools to mm-hmm. save the acc or is it going to go down the same road as the pac-12 i'm afraid it's going to go down the same road as the pac-12 because look, look when if if the sec and the big 10 go off on their own and basically form their own organization they're going there's going to be another wave of, of conference realignment. There's going to be more teams that are going to join them. And so ultimately, you know, what happens there? And, you know, I, I, I think the Clemson and the North Carolinas are going to be okay. It's, it's the Wake Forest and the Vanderbilts. And those, right. those, those are the people that you worry about. Georgia mm. Tech. Somebody brought up Georgia Tech to me last night. I mean, Georgia Tech's got a wonderful tradition and all that. But, do, you know, what's going to happen to a school like that? No question. I think, I mean, there are people are going to be interested in Atlanta, but the SEC doesn't need Atlanta. They've already got it with Georgia, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So where does the Big 12 fit in? Doesn't, shouldn't the Big 12 commissioner be knocking on the door of Sankey and the Big 10 commissioner right now? Or, or because if not, they're, I mean, they're kind of at a fork in the road, aren't they, the Big 12? They are, man. What, here's what, what's going to be interesting is we've got, we got two years on the current contract for the college football playoff. If things are going to play out, it, 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 we, we know now that obviously there's no Pac-12 Pac and all that business. But what's going to happen, you got 24 and 25. What's going to happen starting in 26? Because I'm telling you, uh, there's been a lot of good reporting on this. The 26 season, everything is going to be on the table because we'll have a brand-new deal. We've got two years left on the current deal, and then there'll be a brand-new six-year deal. And what's the structure going to be? For example, do the, do the conferences, do the uh, bowls even come into play? Mm-hmm. you got, in the current format, you've got the top four teams get uh, buys in the first round. Well, and then the other, the other teams, five teams, four teams, eight teams rather, get to play uh, on campus. What's going to happen there? Do we get to a situation where – uh, all all of the playoff games will be on campus, and the bowls are left to fend for themselves. Mm-hmm. That's that's the thing to keep an eye on. Wow, absolutely, no question. So uh, Tony Barnhart's joining us, talking uh, college football, which of course everybody's kind of talking about right now. What what do you expect can come from this Big Ten SEC relationship? Oh, it, leverage, leverage mm-hmm. is is the magical word because what. The reason they, they did this is said, look, I, I, Greg Sankey does not want to blow everything up. He, he served on every committee you could possibly think of, and he's led most of them. He wants, he wants, but what he did say last week in an interview with Paul Feinbaum is, look, 
we do all these meetings. We meet in these big rooms, and we talk about these big ideas, and nothing ever gets done. Huh. You're just kicking the can down the road. And what Sankey and Tony Petiti of the Big Ten are going to do is say, look, here's, some, here's a change we can make right now. Let's make that change. And if the, uh, the other two don't play ball, then that's when the SEC and the Big Ten go, okay, guys, you don't, you don't want to play ball. We're going to go off on our own. And, and that, that is the way. I, don't think, I think the Big 12 and the ACC are going to understand that they're going to have to give. And they're going to have to maybe do some things they don't like to save the whole enterprise, in my mind. But, but Tony, would, would the remaining teams in the ACC benefit more from being, lack of a better term, in the group of five to be more competitive in that level compared to being in the highest level possible? Yeah, and it just depends on how much money they're going to generate. You know, yeah. I, I've, I've often wondered if – if the Power Five teams shouldn't break off on their own, and then everybody else form another division of the NCAA yeah. with, a, with, a, with an enforcement structure, with a championship, with all those things, and give them an op- give those schools the opportunity to go into the marketplace and see what they can generate. But I, what what I'm finding that fans don't understand is that college football, as we have known it for all of our lives, is over. It's yeah. over. Okay. Now you got to figure out what to do next, and you can't cling. It's just like people said, you know, we're going to just change the rules on NIL where we're going to restrict how much guys make. It's called antitrust law. Yep. And if you spend any time doing this at all, you know, anytime you restrict somebody's ability to make what they can make in the marketplace, that is a clear violation of antitrust law. And that that's why ultimately the, the, uh, the Congress – Congress may have to get involved in this thing. Yep, absolutely. No question. I've got a listener to the show who's a big Georgia Southern fan, and he's told me in the past that he hates that Georgia Southern went to Division One, And the reason was because they used to win championships in Division Two, and he knows mm-hmm. that there's no way they'll ever win a championship again. And along your lines of what you were saying, I, I said kind of the same thing, Tony. All right, let the Power Five or whatever power is left – be in their own division, so to speak, and ballot out for the championship and and let those teams that have no chance in the world of having a championship settle settle it on the field and have have a chance to be more competitive in that area. But but has the train left the station on something like that? Uh no, I don't think it has left the station because money will also be the ultimate thing that determines right. all of this. As, as somebody I talked to says, look as we move forward and the money becomes even bigger and bigger and bigger, but the big boys are taking the most, most of it, a lot of these schools are going to have to make up their mind whether or not they want to be in the football business. Uh. Because being a, play, playing college football is a lot different than being in the football business. If uh. you're in the football business, you're, you're, if you're Georgia and you're Alabama uh, and you're, you're Tennessee and you're Ohio State and you're Penn State, you know, you're, you're operating financially at a completely different level, right? Than the than the schools that, that are just below you, and you just—it's not for those schools. I don't think it's sustainable. So I think I think the sheer force of the dollars is going to force them to accept something like this other league that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You you wonder before we let you go, um, your, your thoughts on the transition at Alabama, but from 
Nick Saban to Kalen DeBoer? How do you think it's gone? Well, I think it's gone well. I mean, I think, I've been very impressed by Kalen DeBoer. He's won every place he's ever been, and yes, he's he's got two only two years at a, at a Power Five school as a head coach. I understand that, but I think and I, but it's Alabama. They got players. They got a lot of players. But now, if this if the bar is Nick Saban, then forget about it. Forget about it. I mean, yeah. that, you're not you're not living in the real world. But they are. They will be good enough if, if uh, you know Jalen Milrow. If that offense translates what, what DeBoer likes to do, I think they'll be good. And it's going to be interesting when Georgia goes to Alabama on September 28th. That's going to be really interesting. Oh yeah, no question. Is the infrastructure that Nick built there long and or or good enough to sustain? the program until DeBoer gets it to where he wants to be? Because there's going to be a little bit of a dip. You can't expect it to be the same. But can this what they built, including the NIL, be enough to kind of hold it until he gets to where he wants to be? No, I think absolutely. Absolutely. Because you they, they, they have a great NIL situation. They've got the facilities they need. And so, yeah, Kalen DeBoer is walking into a very, very good situation. And now, does that mean they're going to win a championship? I don't, I don't know. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna be extremely competitive. Well, it's gonna be fun to see, and especially not having divisions uh, with Texas, of course, coming in. They're gonna be good, and Ole Miss is gonna be good. They've had a great off season with their coaching additions, and their of course a plethora of additions from the transfer portal as well. So it's gonna be uh, maybe a little bit more even than it has been in the past, but the the teams that have been in the West uh, in the last couple of years. Tony, thank you. It's always great to have you on the show, and we, we can't wait to see you coming up on Friday and Saturday, and you'll be at the Fan Fest, I know, on Saturday for folks to uh, – you're going to have your book there available as well? Yeah, I think I'll bring a few with me in case somebody wants one. So, awesome. Yeah. Well, good. Yep, good idea. So, again, you can uh, get a copy of that book and uh, go online. If, if not, the 19 of Green – Another great book from Tony Barnhart. Tony, thank you. Okay. See you soon, Bill. All right. We're going to take a break, come back, and as we do, we will open up the phone lines. Plenty to talk about. College football talk right there. Talk Braves. Talk Falcons. Don't talk Hawks. 478-646-ESPN. That is our number. We'd love to talk with you right after this. Could you recite this? No way. You couldn't do that, could you? Remember this song from 1989? 35 years ago from Billy Joel. 35 years ago? I remember the video. We didn't start the fire. Listen to the first part. See if you could remember to recite it. Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Scooter, Baker, Television, North Korea, South Korea, Marilyn Monroe. Try the fire. 
Billy Joel is our artist of the week with We Didn't Start the Fire. Pretty cool song. I think I saw him on an interview say that he has to refresh his memory about this every once in a while. I I don't know how. One time, the moron who used to run the TV station in Macon that I worked for 30 years ago, 28 years ago. I'm not going to mention any names, but anyway, he was an idiot. He wanted me to memorize who's on first. And I'm like, are you kidding? And I had a young mind then. I was like, you know, 26, 27. I'm like, I can't memorize that stuff. If I'd have been able to memorize that kind of thing, I would have gone to law school or medical school. Give me a break. But that was a pretty cool song there that he wrote. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio. Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Studebaker, Television, North Korea, South Korea, Marilyn Monroe. Your homework. Memorize that and don't look at Google and call up tomorrow and sing it. 478-646-ESPN. I want to know. I've asked this question before on the show, and <clears throat> i really like to know. All right, Billy Joel. I can't imagine anybody besides Elton John that has more hits than Billy Joe, Joel. Right? I mean, my God. He, he He's just... How many? How many? How many could he have? 50? I don't know. 40? Really? How many hits could Billy Joel have? Here's my question. How much per month do you think Billy Joel gets off of his music? You know, you've seen all these stories about all these people. I think... I think Stevie Nicks, didn't I read Stevie Nicks sold her music licensing for like half a billion dollars? What the hell could Billy Joel get per month on his music? What What do you think? Five million? Ten million? I mean, I really don't know. I'd love to know that kind of information. Just for curiosity. I mean, I, these guys are loaded. They're, they're, they got more money than they'll ever spend. They're older now, obviously. Um, but... It's crazy to think about how much money they can get off of these songs because, and I always bring this up, the guy who wrote Key Largo is like a one-hit wonder. And I think I read one one time that he gets like 30000 is it 30000 a month or 30000 a year? I can't remember what it was. Uh, can you imagine? Yeah, and Elvis. What could Elvis... Even still to this day, Elvis has been dead since 1977. He's been dead for 37 years. How much money could the Elvis estate get from all of his music? Even all the, I mean, it's just unbelievable amounts of money. Anyway, sports talk show, 478-646-ESPN. Hey, I, I just thought of something that I, I would like some stories. Sometimes we do these shows where we want stories. And I just thought of something, mainly because, again, as I'm sitting here doing the show, I'm watching, or I'm not watching it. I mean, I'm seeing it, but I'm not watching it. Watching it means I'm paying attention. But there's a story on about Ken from Cummings Dodgers. It's gross. I need to turn the damn thing off. I've seen Tom Lasorda on my TV much too much, much too much this afternoon. Fat son of a gun. He's dead now. It doesn't matter. I hated Tom Lasorda. He was a putz. But on this show, they had a video of Don Drysdale. Now, Don Drysdale was a pitcher back in the 50s and 60s for the Blue Bloods. And he was a great pitcher. There's no question about that. He also became a broadcaster. He died uh, very early. He was like in his, I think, mid to late 50s. 
and he had a heart attack in Montreal and died. And it was very sad. And and um, he, you know, he was a great broadcaster. I thought he did a really good job. But you're probably like, well, why are you bringing him up? Well, okay, so he was on this TV show, and it made me think of the fact that one time in Atlanta, when I was a kid, and I loved to get autographs. I got Don Drysdale's autograph. And and I told this story, I think, last week or the week before about when I got Frank Robinson's autograph. And and now the the story about Don Drysdale's autograph. I'm outside of the Dodgers bus. I should have blown the thing up, but anyway, I'm kidding. Outside the Dodgers bus getting some autographs. I don't know what year it was, 80s, somewhere in the 80s. Kid. I didn't get autographs when I got older. I just, it wasn't the same thing. But I was a kid. It was fun. You know, it was fun. I wasn't going to sell them. I just kept them. But Don Drysdale was a broadcaster and he was sitting on the front row of the bus. And he had already gotten on the bus. I didn't see him get on the bus, but I looked and he was on the front row of the bus. And I said to Don Drysdale, Mr. Drysdale, could I have your autograph? And Don Drysdale motioned for me to come onto the bus, and he wrote Don Drysdale in my autograph book. Now, folks, I don't think I even realized at that age how big of a deal that was. But Don Drysdale is obviously a Hall of Fame pitcher. He's probably one of the best pitchers to truly ever live. I mean, he, he, was, he was a beast. And to me, that's a really cool story. I've got a couple of cool stories about autographs, and I've, I've obviously had shared the Frank Robinson uh, autograph story with you. But to me, that's a cool story, that, that Don Drysdale would motion to me, probably sitting there with a Braves hat on too. Probably I could have had a shirt on that said Dodgers suck for all I know. But he motion, motioned for me because I hated the Dodgers when I was a kid even worse than I do now. I'm a little bit more of an adult now, so I only hate them, you know, like on a scale of 1 to 10 on a, you know, 9 compared to a 10. But he motioned for me to come on the bus, and I just took like two steps, and there he was, and he signed my book, and I thanked him, and, and you know, he didn't really say very much. But, I mean, he he allowed me to come on that bus for just a split second to get his autograph, and it was Don Drysdale. Now, that's pretty cool. you got to admit, that's pretty cool. So when I saw Don Drysdale, I thought of that story. Because they're talking to Oral Horsheiser, and I wouldn't get his autograph if it was the last person on earth. Hell with him. Um, and I thought, let's tell some autograph stories. Have you ever gotten an autograph from a sports celebrity? Uh, and it doesn't have to be a great, neat, interesting story. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything like that per se. But what's the what's the best autograph that you've gotten? And and what does it mean to you? I, and, I, and for those of you who didn't hear me tell the story about the Frank Robinson autograph, briefly, uh, I was 13, 14 years old, and we were at the Giants Hotel in Atlanta. And Frank Robinson had already turned down some autograph hounds who were like, you know, fat, overweight, 30-year-olds who were obviously getting autographs to sell them. And he was like, no. I saw him motion to them, no, and kind of shooed them away. Frank Robinson was not known as the best fan player in his lifetime. He, you know, just kind of gruff guy. And 
I was like, man, I'd love to get Frank Robinson's autograph. And my mom, who was with me, of course, who took me there to get autographs, she's like, well, go over there and ask him. Just go ask him. And so I did. And the only thing I had, I didn't have my autograph book for some reason, whatever reason. I had a, a, a notebook. And I just opened the notebook, and Frank Robinson signed that notebook. And then I got Dwayne Kuyper's autograph and Mike Kruko and a couple of others. And I lost it. Couldn't find it for like 20 years. I didn't know where that notebook was. I remembered it. I remember the story, obviously. And I'm like, I just couldn't find it. About 10 years ago, I'm going through a stack of stuff, which we all have a stack of stuff right in our house. And all of a sudden, I see this notebook, this dyed yellow notebook. It was one of those, you know, you can get them for 33 cents at Walmart, for crying out loud. And I and it kind of clicked to me. Hold on. And I opened that notebook up. And there was Frank Robinson's autograph. I'm not going to tell you I cried, but I was, I was close to it. Because I'm like, I really thought I had lost that. And, you know, not that I'm going to sell it. It's just sentimental to me. You know, it's just a sentimental thing of, dang, that was pretty cool that Frank Robinson turned those guys down when they tried to get his autograph. And yet for 13-year-old Bill, well, he signed it. And that was cool. I mean, <laughs> and again, I, I didn't know. I mean, I, I knew Frank Robinson was a Hall of Famer. I knew that Frank Robinson was a great player when I was a kid. But still, later on, it's like, God, you got Frank Robinson's autograph? That's pretty cool. So we'd like to hear those stories. It's kind of turned to show in a different direction, but I think it'd be kind of cool. 478-646-ESPN. J-Rad's in Macon and has a story for us. Hey. Hey, Bill. I got three. I'll be real quick with it. Uh, Chipper Jones was the biggest blankety blank to me that I've ever ever been around when I when he was in Macon that I've never forgiven him for. He was such a jerk. Mm. And um probably. Huh? He was cocky probably, wasn't he? Yeah, he was he was just a jerk. But the two uh the one good story I have is Brendan Shanahan from the Red Wings. I went up to Atlanta and they had a do you know about the underneath there's a place underneath the arena where the buses park, and I took the day off work, and I went up there, and I was standing outside the bus waiting on Brendan Shanahan. He's my favorite hockey player, mm-hmm. and he came out. He was none too pleased, but he did sign for me, and he did take a picture. But I also went up to Thrasher's practice. I took the day off work, drove two hours up there because I wanted Kovalchuk to sign my Kovalchuk jersey. Mm-hmm. He comes off the ice, he looks at me, he shakes his head, and he goes back to the locker room. And I'm like, dude, I just took I took the day off. I drove two hours to get here. Mm. You're gonna and you're gonna be a jerk. And it was just it was so disappointing. You never forget those things either, do you? You never forget them. No, and it would have taken I mean there were five people there. It would have taken him, you know, twenty seconds. Yeah, and it's I'll a shame never, that happens. 
I would never like approach somebody in a in a restaurant with their wife with a fork in their mouth. I would I would leave them alone, and I have left them alone. But my whole house is um, autographs, musicians, mainly musicians and Georgia players. But those two just stick out. And you know, Shanahan did give me the autograph, but he wasn't. He was not gracious at all, and it was just just such a disappointment. I had Don Sutton one time be kind of snotty to me in the parking lot at Turner Field in Atlanta. And he really had no business being a snotty jerk to me, but he was. And you just never forget that. you know. You ne- and I was an adult then, and to be honest with you, I, I was not even – I wasn't working that year. I was doing something else. It was between broadcast jobs. And, and I'm like, well, what the heck? I'm going to get Don Sutton's autograph. And, man, he was a – he was rude. He really was. I don't think he would have been rude to me if I had been a kid, but he was rude to me. And uh, so you just never forget that. You People, I don't think those players realize sometimes that uh, people are going to remember the, the interactions they have forever. You know, I just don't think right, they exactly. understand that. Exactly, and like I said, man, I would never bother anybody if they were out with sure. their family. But when they're at the arena or yeah. they're at the the ball field or whatever, I think they're fair game. They should, uh, yeah, they should be gracious. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's a shame that people who do sell that stuff and kind of get out of control is given people who just want the memory uh, kind of a bad name. So, what time do the Thrashers play tonight? <laughs> I don't know, but I think the Red Wings play at eight. I think. <laughs> We hey, might I'll, get we might get hockey back in Georgia. It sounds like it, doesn't it? Up in Gwinnett. Yeah, I hope so, man. I really hope so. Um, always great hearing uh, Tony Barnhart too. Thanks for having him on. Yeah, he was great. He was really good. All right, J Rad. Thank you. We appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. All right, four seven eight six four six ESPN. Kind of unplanned. Took the show in a different direction. Your best autograph story. We'd love to hear your story. 478-646-ESPN is our number. We'll take a break. Be back with more of your phone calls right after this. Don't go changing to try and please me. You never let me down before. Don't imagine you're too familiar, and I don't see you anymore. I would not leave you in times of trouble. We never could have come this far. I took the good times I'll take the bad times I'll take you just the way you are From 1977 47 years ago Just the way you are I love that song It's a great song From the album The Stranger It peaked at number 3 Was Billy Joel's first top 10 hit even in 1978, the next year, it peaked at number 17. There was a cover of that song that was done by Barry White. It was a top 20 hit in the U.K., according to Mr. Rogers, giving us some 
information there. That was a great song, though. Love that song. Back to the phones we go. I think we got a good topic here. Y'all hold on. Be patient with us now. Jamie in Byron is first up this segment. Hello, Jamie. Hey, can you hear me? I can. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. So uh, I feel kind of bad about this one because I'm a big fan of his now, but for a long time I wasn't because of this whole story right here. But if, uh, when Chipper Jones played for Macon, we had a uh, like our, our T-ball banquet or whatever. We got to go down in the dugout. I got to meet Glenn Hubbard. David Justice was there doing rehab. They all met with us. We got to sit down and talk to all of them, have autographs with all of them. But Chipper Jones wouldn't come out of the clubhouse until right when they took the field. It would not talk to anybody on our team at all. Mm. And until he retired, I was avidly against him and could not stand him. <laughs> what changed? His book. Really? Yeah, one of my friends got his book, and I read his book. And when he was talking about it in his book, if he could go back to his younger self and talk to his younger self. Yeah. And that's what changed. That's when I was like, you know, he's an okay guy, and I, I don't have anything against him. But uh, for a long time, I was avidly against him, and if the Braves had traded him, I would have clapped. <laughs> well, you know, you never forget those stories. Like I was saying to Jay Rand, I mean, I, I've told the story, Jamie, when I was probably six or seven years old. We found out that Hank Aaron was coming to Waycross. He was coming to the Elks Club in Waycross on Plant Avenue to speak. I don't know to what group did matter. I was, I mean, I was seven, eight years old at the most. And we had been told no autographs. Okay. So we got it. We got no autographs. And we just wanted to see him. You know, it was probably 1977, 78, so it was only a few years after he'd broke Hank, a rather a Babe Ruth record, right? And it was Hank Aaron. Even though I was seven years old, I had had a shirt when I was like four or five years old that had the Braves logo and number 44 on it. And Hank came, came in, and me and a, a, a friend were there with our moms, and he looked at us and turned around and went the other way. And you never forget that. Unfortunately, you never forget that. Now, I know he was Hank Aaron, and he probably had that happen all the time. But to see two six, seven-year-old kids there who had stars in their eyes and to turn around and walk away was kind of tough. And you just never forget that story, right? Not at all. It, it sticks with you for a long time. Like, I was, like until you were talking about it, I realized, you know, I'd, it stuck with me for years. Yeah. I know it. I know it. Well, hopefully at some point you'll see Chipper again and he'll be nicer to you now that he's older. I hope so. If I ever see him again, I hope he is. I, yeah. I got the, like you got to run out on the field with everybody. Yeah. And uh, my dad was the coach and he set it all up where I got to go run out with Chipper Jones because he knew I was a big Chipper Jones fan. Yeah. And by that time I was so disgusted with him. They sang the national anthem and you're supposed to stand there and talk to him for a minute. I just turned around and walked off. <laughs> and how old were you? Uh... 11 or 12. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, you, you, even kids react that way. That's for sure. I get it. Jamie, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. You have a great day. All right. You too. Take care. Matt and Savannah is next. Hello, Matt. Hey, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for calling. Well, I want to tell you first off, I love the fact that there's a Georgia-centric radio sports program here in the local area. I adore the Braves. I've been a Braves fan since 1982. I'm 45, so it's been a long time. But I just love hearing the way you speak on them. I love hearing all the insights you have. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I'll be in Savannah next week at Coach's Corner. You ought to come by and say hello. I'd love to meet you in person. I'd love to do the same. That's next week, you said? Yeah, I'll, I'll be there next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. I'll make a point to get out there then. Awesome. Probably Great. Bring, might bring my kids too. Absolutely. But I got autograph stories for you. And, okay. Uh, one of, the first one I got is uh, it's actually a good Chipper Jones story. He was good. rehabbing himself after getting injured in 94. And his uh, his first wife, maybe that's what caused some of the problems with what happened afterwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but his first wife had um, her best friend uh, had some connections here in Savannah. Her best friend's dad, I should say. And uh, he came out to Bethesda, home for boys, and did an autograph session. And I got a, I got a minor league rookie card signed by him and a baseball signed by him. And he was a very nice man at that point. That's good. That's good. Well, you know. And, and I'll say this, whether it's Hank Aaron or Chipper Jones, we have no idea what those guys go through. Now, look, they make a lot of money. They they have unbelievable celebrity. And it's not easy to play please everyone. It's not. I, I, I walked around with Brian Snicker at the UGA game, football game, after he won the World Series. And, Matt, it, it was – I've never seen celebrity like that on that level that close. And if if all 92,000 people in that stadium at Sanford Stadium that day could have, they would have either taken a picture, shook his hand, or gotten an autograph. I mean, all 92,000 people. That was how electric it was because, again, it was like three weeks after they won the World Series, so – they went crazy when Brian Snicker was there and just walking around with him behind him at the game. It, it was, it was amazing. Now, of course, Snit is relishing on, on all of this and is loving every second of it, but still you see how people react to a star of that caliber. Doesn't give people an a, a, a excuse to be snotty or, or bad to people. But, you know, it, it is something that most of us have no concept of. But, in, you know, as many bad stories there may be out there about anybody we talk about, there's going to be good stories too, right? So I'm, I'm glad that Chipper, because Chipper's a good guy. He's not a bad guy. And he has learned a lot about himself from earlier. But I'm glad you got a good experience. That's good to hear. I did. I got one more for you as well. This one's at Grayson Stadium here in Savannah. I grew up within a bicycle ride of that place. We used to go and watch the uh, Savannah Cardinals play all the time. Hey, Matt, Matt, can you hold on and and tell me this story after the break? Can you do that? Sure. Okay, hold on because we got to go to break. We got to run the break. It's a hard break. We got to go to break. We'll take uh, a break, come back. We got two on hold. Y'all be patient with us now because these are good stories. We want to get to them. I'm glad I thought of that. I'm glad the Dumb Dodger show was on MLB Network. If you think of Don Drysdale. Again, we're talking about good autograph stories. 478-646-ESPN, back with more on The Bill Shanks Show.